This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is the Chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, Representative Mike Conaway. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance, still the smartest and most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Texas Representative and House Ag Committee Chairman Mike Conaway next. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. With crop prices falling, farm incomes plummeting, and Mother Nature wrecking havoc, the private sector crop insurance infrastructure is more important today than ever. Providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The U.S. Congress will have little time to accomplish much work on appropriation legislation before the current continuing resolution expires. House Agriculture Committee Chairman Mike Conaway expects tremendous attention to be given to legislation that must find the president's desk. Well, I think that uh, those first two weeks of December are going, to, are going to be pretty frenetic in the sense that the omnibus bill has to pass. Uh, as with any bill uh, this big, there are going to be a lot of uh, folks seeing this as a, a way to get something to the president's desk. And our probes fellows, uh, men and women, have got you know some pretty heavy lifting to do to sort through all of those things that might be added to that bill that have actually nothing whatsoever to do with spending, per se, but it's seen as a way to you know, to get some things done right here at the end that uh, can get help you know from the Senate and that kind of thing. So I think it's going to be pretty frenetic those first couple of weeks of December. You have spent some time in an outreach with each one of the members of your committee. Is that preparing the troops for battle? Well, it is, and making sure that uh, I'm listening to what they're uh, wanting to do on the committee. Are there simple things that uh, that's unique to the district they represent or uh, a region that they uh, that they represent, making sure we're listening to them and, and so that they've got the buy-in that uh, the committee works important and is going in a direction that they would prefer that it go. So uh, I'm blessed to have really great members. Um, I don't know if you know this or not. We were oversubscribed uh, this time. In the past, uh, the, uh, there have been some uh, vacancies on ag that, that folks who wanted to uh, get a waiver could get on and, and because it made some sense for the district. This time we had more people uh, wanting on the committee than we had slots available for. And so I'm blessed to have some really good members this time. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I'm trying to pitch over the next uh, three years as we lead up to the 2018 Farm Bill is that we've got to build a, an awareness of the symbiotic relationship between urban America and rural America. Urban America benefits from all the hard work and sweat equity and labor and risk-taking that production agriculture does day in and day out. They just don't know it. Uh, as, uh, as has been said before, they, Americans pay about six, a little better than 6% of their disposable income for food. That's the lowest in the developed world. And so when you look at the impact that, say, uh, a 50% increase, let's say we went to 9%. Think of the devastation that would have on the working poor and food stamp recipients and all the other folks out there who, who benefit every single day because good, hardworking American producers get up and, and put stuff on their table or start the process that allows them to pay you only 6%. And so uh, creating that awareness of the symbiotic relationship is something I've been pitching and I'm asking anybody involved to, to be a part of that narrative as well because urban America – 
I like to say they benefit, their pocketbook benefits, there's a self-interest for them. They're just not as aware of it as they need to be. I would ask for your observation. Is this a different House of Representatives now with a new speaker, or is it a new leader in the same mode of business? Well, it's the same mode of business because we still have the same president. We still have the same six short votes in the Senate, that kind of thing. But there's a new freshness to what's going on with uh, under Paul Ryan's leadership. I think everybody's... Uh, pleased that he's uh, keeping his campaign promises in a sense that uh, the steering committee, he committed to changing the steering committee in a meaningful way before Thanksgiving, and, and uh, uh, that's happened, and, uh, and, and so that's great. He's also committed to using the committees uh, as they were designed, and that is that's the incubator of all the good ideas that percolates up through them, and, and I think folks are uh, seeing him committed to doing, to, to doing that and, and not having top-down leadership as much as as we've seen under uh, under John. So I think there's just a, a new kind of uh, pep at everybody's step because I do sense a uh, kind of a new sheriff in town, and, uh, but we still have the same mechanics as the backdrop in that we'll have uh, you know President Obama for another 14 months as well as uh, you know six votes short, six votes short in the Senate. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think everybody's excited about, uh, about Paul Ryan's leadership. But certainly little, if any, honeymoon, especially when you look at the next two weeks and counting down to the appropriation process and what promises to be an omnibus bill. Mr. Chairman, what are the, what are the key elements there that you want to see a part of this legislation and at the same time that you want to deflect? Well, obviously, uh, getting the the uh, crop insurance fix in that uh, that I negotiated with uh, with leadership, uh, in in the way it was in, in the commitments they made to me and and, and the rest of the folks in in our side of the uh, of the building with, that are that are keenly aware of that that's the that's job one is making sure that's in there. There are a variety of other things that uh, could happen. You know, we've got some legislative initiatives that that uh, I've offered up. Uh, you know, cool and and uh, the CFTC reform or reauthorization. There are several things that. That uh, leadership could, uh, or you know, uh, probes guys uh, could put in there to incentivize folks to vote for this bill. That's going to be the big deal. And you mentioned the honeymoon period. This will be kind of the uh, an acid test for Paul in that uh, he's got to get this beast done. Uh, it's an easy vote. It's an easy bill to vote against because there'd be so much stuff in there. So we've got to build folks, uh, give folks reason to vote for it. And, uh, and obviously having the crop insurance thing in the bill would be uh, a reason why I would vote for the bill. So uh, there are a lot of things uh, on our plate that uh, you know, we've uh, passed early in the year that we could uh, kind of slide into this uh, a bit of a Christmas tree thing that the omnibus bill is going to look like. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's the way the system works. And, uh, and, and so I've, I've made those things where to... Uh, available to leadership if they think that's something that would help get to uh, you know get people to a yes vote. Mr. Chairman, is the crop insurance industry so tightly wound and balanced that another three billion dollars in cuts would have that big of an impact? Yes, it would. And I, and I don't mean to be blunt with you, but it is. Uh, this is an industry that has already taken dramatic cuts. Uh, 2008 Farm Bill, the reinsurance. Uh, uh, standard reassurance agreement was done. The re-rating on certain crops, they've pulled billions and billions of dollars out of the program. Uh, the, you know, the 16 companies that are hanging on for dear life, they've got to actually justify their existence to either their parent company or to shareholders, and they've got to have a certain return. And if you drop that uh, number from, and I know the 14 to 9, uh, 8.9 looks like it should be livable, but the truth of the matter is, uh, we've got two different accounting systems. You've got the USDA who counts a number, and then you've got the companies themselves. And the company would argue that it's about a 5% return. Well, if there's nine percentage points different between the 14 and the, and the 5 that's there, uh, and that same ratio stays on point, then you're going to drop the 
the ability of the insurance companies to stay in business to continue to incentivize or to, to argue with their parent company to allow the capital into that business that's got to be there. And so, uh, in my view, this is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. Uh, it would flush the companies out, would leave us with no insurance companies in the private sector. This would, in my view, wreak irreparable harm on the crop insurance business and push it into a federal taxpayer-only scenario that we had before 1980 in which Risk Management Association agency uh, ran it. And, and we were the overall you know, kind of deal, and the president wants to go back to that, but certainly nobody in production agriculture wants to see us go back to a federal government monopoly kind of thing. With the omnibus as a vehicle, do you see any thought of tax extenders being included in that bill or in standalone that would provide any certainty with regard to tax structure for capital purchases in agriculture or renewable fuels of the many other areas that are covered by these extenders? Well, I, I think the extenders, and I haven't heard anybody talk about putting it on the omnibus. That, that's one that could do, go as a standalone basis. Um, and, and, yes, we'll get that done. It's, I'm a CPA by, by profession, and it is tragic that we have hung up the 179 deduction, as an example, uh, again this year like we did last year. Uh, until late, you know, late in the year, and, and, and folks uh, that are buying big ticket items, uh, in many instances, the tax treatment of that purchase is an integral part of how things are financed, and, it, and you and they can't, you know, they can't buy it assuming that that 179 deduction will get done. Even though the House and Senate have already passed separate, uh, you know, individual bills, I've got great confidence it'll be in there. But uh, uh, I, I think that one might go by itself on a standalone basis. You'd have a kind of a parallel track between those two. But if it's in the omnibus bill, that would give folks even one more reason to uh, to vote for the omnibus bill. Are there particular pieces that might be included as riders, per se, with regard to waters of the U.S. and the Environmental Protection Agency that could throw the wheels off this deal? Well, I think the uh, it depends on which side of, the, of that conversation you're on. We've got riders in there. We want to hold every single one of those that we can. Uh, obviously, uh, Senate Democrats have a, a, a bit of a voice in that because... Uh, they'll have to have a, 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 some votes to get to the 60 vote threshold over there on their deal. So, uh, and in particular, the currently, you know, the most high profile for us, of course, is the waters of the U.S. Although, uh, right now the courts have us protected uh, in the near term. I think uh, having that spending restriction in there would be an important uh, element as well. And so, yes, the riders are important. Uh, there will be a lot of them that are in there. In fact, the, uh, uh, this past week, uh, the various subcommittees whose bills did not go across the House floor uh, held uh, executive sessions with members to come in and, and allow us to talk about, you know, these are writers that are important to me. Can we stick them in the bill that gets ultimately, you know, rolled in? We've got six bills that have gone across the floor, and those writers are in. Uh, the, the other six that are yet to be uh, fixed are done. Uh, members had a chance to weigh in and say, you know, in this particular arena, I need, I want a writer that does X, Y, and Z. And so the, the probes guys went through that process of listening to us. We'll now see what they wind up putting in the bills. But the writers are really important because that's where the power of the purse actually, the rubber hits the road, so to speak. And, uh, and so they are important. The ink is barely dry on the 14 Farm Bill and still implementation has taken place. Cotton's important to Texas and there are calls to call cottonseed and oilseed to allow producers some support under the 14 Farm Bill. Is this something that can be done uh, through the administration and the Department of Agriculture, or does this require legislation? No, it's just, uh, the, the Secretary currently has the authority uh, to determine what oilseeds go in and out of, of uh, Title I, and, and it, it's clearly, in my view, uh, cottonseed oil should go 
uh, into that program, and I've expressed that to uh, to the secretary. But it's in his discretion uh, at this point. The reason it had come up before, of course, is that Lent was already under Title One, and, and putting cottonseed oil would have looked like a double dip. Well, now the Lent portion of cotton production has no protections whatsoever, and these are really hard times uh, across the uh, the cotton belt. Uh, this year, given the low prices and, and the things that China and India have done, uh, all those kind of things, and, and virtually no protection un, under the uh, under the farm bill other than crop insurance. And so, uh, this is an important conversation to have. Uh, we're encouraging the secretary to look at it for the 15 crop year because that would provide the soonest help that folks could take to the bank to uh, help them stay in business for uh, for next year. So, that's one of the things I'm, I'm really concerned about, Jeff. And that is how can how can the banking industry finance production of agriculture next year, given the uh, uh, the limitations and restrictions that have been percolating through the provincial regulators as well as under the Dodd Frank rules? Can bankers use have the discretion to continue to to bank uh, good longstanding customers who had a hard year this year because you know farm incomes are down about forty three percent over the last two years and and so can we uh, count on the the kind of banking back you know uh, backstop? That has been there in the past because bankers could could know their borrower, understand the risks, and understand the the uh, the other things other than just the you know cash flow from this year's crop. So that's one of the things that we'll be looking at uh, as we move into the uh, planting season for next year. Is uh, what's the impact that that uh, all these Dodd Frank and everything else has on the ability of farmers to to get the kind of financing they need. Uh, but the short answer on the uh, cottonseed oil, that's within the Secretary's discretion. We do not need legislation. We just need him to agree to it. Uh, I've had that conversation with him. Our staffs are in conversation about the mechanics and what it would cost and all those kind of good things. So we're gathering the uh, data, uh, but I'm encouraging the Secretary to, 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 to let's make this effective for the 15 crop year. It seems with regard to our country of origin labeling laws that we've been out of time for a long time and now are in extra time, if you will, with regard to retaliation that may be coming from Canada and Mexico. Your committee, your chamber has uh, taken action to repeal that law. Still no action yet in the Senate. Are we playing with fire, or is there still time? No, I think we're playing with fire. Obviously, the uh, that panel, we think, is going to be uh, mid-December now instead of late. We thought it was going to be late November, but they're going to be mid-December. Uh, the problem with waiting, I don't think that anybody disagrees that uh, mandatory cool needs to go away. Uh, and be repealed uh, on either side of the building. But the problem with this threat of mandatory or retaliatory measures, it's already having an impact. Uh, you know, there are folks who are trying to set up deliveries. Let's say, let's say a product is sold in Canada that's made in the United States, and you need six months to set up the delivery uh, for that product. You can't negotiate that product right now because it might be on the list of retaliatory products. You don't know what you're going to have to actually pay for it given the tariffs that could be impl- in, 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 uh, uh, applied to it. So the guys who are buying stuff in Canada for resale don't know what to do at this stage because if that particular product winds up on a tariff list, then they don't know what they could turn around and sell it for. And as good as our stuff is in America, if you add a two or three hundred percent tariff on there, that might not be able to be sold in Canada. So, just a threat. Even though they're not specifically named what it will be affected and how much, it's already causing a problem with commerce right now. Even though it hasn't been implemented. So, my, you know, we're encouraging the senators to uh, to move this thing and get it done uh, sooner rather than later. But it now looks like that panel's in uh, mid in, in mid December, and then we'll know for sure. I think the folks that are hanging on to the that the number being really minor and really small are going to be disappointed because I think it's going to be nearer the the number that the Canadians and the Mexicans said it was going to be. Senator Stabenow would like to have a voluntary program. Uh, a voluntary program would be great. 
uh, as long as that's what it is. Uh, I don't want something that morphs into a mandatory program, but a voluntary program run by the industry. I mean, we've got you know, those kind of marketing things are available to anybody out there that wants to uh, to do that. So, yeah, a voluntary program would be great. Uh, you know, if that's the case, then any industry can set up a, uh, a marketing cachet kind of program, that, which is what country of origin label is, right now without any kind of congressional help or, or uh, interference. You and the full committee already working on the next farm bill with regard to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, a complicated program, expensive, but certainly for those in need, much needed. What have you learned about the program thus far, and what are the thoughts that you gather as you look to revamping or working that program in future policy? Well, the, we started that program review because it hadn't been reviewed in a long, long time. It spends $80 billion a year. It's important to the beneficiaries. It's important to taxpayers that we get it corrected. So we've launched this not in any kind of a threat. We've say what's working, what's not working. Are there moral hazards associated with the way the program is structured? Uh, so far, we don't have anything proposed at this stage. We're still gathering uh, information about those, uh, those kind of questions about what's working, what's not working. We had uh, one particularly memorable testimony one day by a young woman from Chicago who's a single mom with two kids. And she said, don't look at the SNAP program as a safety net. Look at it as a trampoline. And I said, what do you mean, ma'am? And she said, well, I was on the program. I got a couple of bounces. I got off for a while. I got back on a couple of bounces. I'm now off the program. I'm raising my children. I've got a good job. I've got an education. We're not on any uh, benefit programs anywhere. So my two kids are being raised in a home where I'm providing for them and the federal taxpayers are not. In fact, I'm now on the other side of that coin. I'm you know helping other folks with my federal tax dollars. And so when you walk people through that scenario, they would go, well, yeah, I'm supportive of a program that, that's, a, that's a trampoline that gets people off the program at, a, at an appropriate time. And then, of course, you have the other testimony that, that came out before, before we did, during the 14 Farm Bill conversation about the 27-year-old surfer who's uh, able-bodied, under 50, no dependents, and loves to surf, but he doesn't want to work, and he's on food stamps. And, and so as we, we're looking at everything we can to understand it, most of it. One of the things I have learned on this issue as we study it is that the proponents typically reach to the conversation about the folks that all of us agree on and the, uh, the folks who are against it reach to the, like that surfer who we're all against and, and we talk past each other as we try to look at this program so we're gathering it in and i hope we do wind up with some good bipartisan support for if there are changes necessary or if there are uh, recommendations that uh, they wind up being bipartisan because we've laid the right groundwork how would you characterize or from your own perspective how are you now and is your staff and the committee evaluating the text of the TPP? Well, we're going through it with a fine-tooth comb like everybody else. One of the things, I, you know, we got plenty of time, first off. There's no rush to judgment on this deal. I don't think we'll, uh, on the TPP, we'll vote on this until well into next year. I'm asking each producer group, go through it, understand what it does to you, what it does for you, against you, all those kind of things. Help decision makers, members who are going to vote, understand what your position is. Uh, I made the rounds last week in, in uh, District 11 when this conversation came up. I said, look, you're going to have a minimum of 60 days to go through it. If you've got concerns about it, please share those with me. While I am normally biased to be in favor of trade deals, this is a specific one that I have not yet made my mind up on. I'm waiting for the input from the industry, from you know, folks back home and other kinds of things to see whether or not it's something we should support. 
And so while it was negotiated among folks, it's now in writing and available for anybody who wants to look at it to look at it. And so if you've got a dog in that fight, then you need to be going through it so as to help yourself understand it. But then also it's very important that you communicate to your decision maker, your member of Congress, your senator, as to what you think uh, should be done with respect to TPP. Mr. Chairman, we want to thank you for taking time uh, in this busy season to spend with us here on Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and, sir, you have the last word. Well, just uh, thank you for what you do to help uh, us get our messages out. I do want to put a pitch to my cotton guys. I understand how hard life is right now and that uh, you know we're working to try to get uh, you know something done for them. There are broader trade issues, India, China, and others, that are affecting uh, particularly the cotton producers uh, right now. So our government's got to do a better job of weighing in to protect our producers uh, under these WTO agreements and other bilateral agreements to force our partners like China and India to, to do what's right with respect to uh, production agriculture. But uh, we're off to a good 11-month start now in the Ag Committee here in, uh, in the House, and I'm proud of the work we've done. Our thanks to House Agriculture Committee Chairman Mike Conaway, our guest on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance, still the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.